0: Okay, uh, this is Revelation chapter 10 uh, before us this morning. Revelation chapter 10. So you've got a Bible or maybe you've got this notebook. Uh, hopefully, ideally, you've got that notebook open and you've got some notes now and you've got the text on your left and the notes on your right. And so the title of this lesson is based on the main part of chapter 10, which is at the end. The best part's at the end of this I don't know about the best part, but the most significant part, everything is leading to the end of the chapter. And so the title of the lesson is Gospel Indigestion. It occurs to me that a better title would be Mother's Day Meal, but uh, uh, you can be the judge of that. Now, the questions uh, here, these are somewhat frivolous, uh, but does anybody know if papyrus is gluten-free? Does anybody know? Uh, Okay, okay. Well, you're going to know after we're finished here this morning. Uh, Is it a fruit or a vegetable? Does anybody have any idea? (laughs) Okay, all right. Uh, Sorry, sorry. It's made from, uh, actually, uh, papyrus is a reed that grows on riverbanks. So would that technically be a vegetable? Maybe? Uh, Who knows? I'm just kidding. Yes, yes. All right. Uh, there's, there's papyrus involved in this chapter, not papaya, but papyrus. As is always the case in the book of Revelation, uh, it, it was when it was written and originally read to these seven churches. It's true for us as well. There's a context to the book and our own appreciation for and knowledge of the Old Testament affects how much we appreciate the text in front of us. There are, I've, I've said this so many times, but I don't get tired of saying it because every week I say it to myself. There are a few books of the, of the Old Testament that are just crucial for reading and understanding the book of Revelation. Revelation is the last book of the Bible. I, I've called this series The End. Uh, another guy wrote a book that everybody reads on the book of Revelation called The Climax of Prophecy. It's the ultimate word of, of all of the prophetic truth of the Old Testament. All of this longing, all of this preaching uh, is fulfilled in the book of Revelation. Now, Ezekiel, long book, challenging, I get it. Uh, but I've given you some references in here. Here's one that we're getting ready to read here in just a second. Uh, and also Daniel are such key books for revelation and not just so much what they say, but because of where they were in history, these men, Ezekiel and Daniel were prophets to people who were living in exile, right? Uh, They were part of a group of people who had been so hard-headed for so long that God had punished them, his own people, okay? Israel, his own son, God was pleased to punish him. That's redemptive, incidentally, and there's a greater son of God that was also punished, and we'll get to him uh, here in a moment. Uh, But these prophets were ministering to people who were living in an alien an increasingly hostile culture, Babylon, all right? Pagan, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? That's the that's context of Daniel, right? Okay, um, what else was I gonna say? The, the seven churches in Asia in the first century, first century, not 500 BC, but in the first century AD, they... Like the Israelites in captivity, in exile, they were living I don't know about aliens, because I don't think they were aliens, they're probably born into the Asian culture in Turkey, uh, but they were living in a culture that was progressively becoming more and more hostile to them as Christians as those who had professed faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And, you know, you can study the history of Rome in the first century and understand that the the empire, okay, you can think about Star Wars, the Roman empire was sometimes benevolent, other times dictatorial, they controlled the shots. And while Judaism was a legitimate religion recognized by Rome, this new cult of people who were following Jesus Christ and eating his body and drinking his blood was increasingly alien and eventually, sooner than later, going to feel the brunt of the wrath of Rome. And so this idea of Jesus being Lord... In an empire where Caesar was Lord was becoming more and more radical and revolutionary. This vision of Jesus Christ as the lion of the tribe of Judah. I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago. I saw it yesterday. I cut it out of the Wall Street Journal. There was a book on Hannibal, who was an enemy of Rome, all right? Hannibal, remember across the Alps with the elephants and all that? Uh, He was called the Lion of Carthage. And there was this, uh, I mentioned this already, terracotta-colored carving of this brawny, burly, roaring lion that was associated somehow with Hannibal, the Lion of Carthage. So, If you wanted, if if you were in the church of Sardis and you wanted to profess faith in the lion of Judah, you might eventually have to face the wrath of Rome because they might think that you like Hannibal were being uh, insurgents or plotting insurrection. All right. there's. do, Do you see how much we can say about this book? It has a historical context. It has a literary context. It's full of symbols. Every single line of the book is a symbol in the very first part of what I'm getting ready to tell you. Everything is questioned. Uh, Such is my dilemma. Uh, Yesterday, I'm sitting at home. It's five o'clock already? Are you kidding me? Uh, Not that I didn't waste any time. I'm great at that. But uh, this is a challenging part of a challenging book. Uh, This morning, We're talking about gospel indigestion. May you experience the sweetness and the burden of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, all right. Um, Look, look at it. Look at this text here from Ezekiel chapter two and three. uh, This part of the book of Revelation directly scoops some of that content out and applies it to the cake that gets baked in chapter 10 of Revelation. Ezekiel, when I looked, behold, a hand was stretched out to me, and behold, a scroll of a book was in it. And he spread it before me, and it had writing on the front and on the back. Where have you heard this before? Chapter 5. Uh, And there were written on it words of lamentation and mourning and woe. Where have you heard that before? Chapter 9, woe. Sorry, chapter 8, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth. These themes are all in this neighborhood of the book of Revelation. Uh, Words of judgment. And he said to me, son of man, eat whatever you find here. Eat This scroll and go speak to the house of Israel. Eat, not meet and greet, but eat and speak. Eat and go speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth and he gave me this scroll to eat. And he said to me, son of man, feed your belly with this scroll that I will give you and fill your stomach with it. Then I ate it and in my mouth, it was sweet as honey. All right, Uh, that's Old Testament uh, from Ezekiel. God giving Ezekiel a very full, sorry, burrito, a rolled up scroll, okay? No refried beans in it, just words. And it was words of judgment because you could go read it for yourself. God was calling Ezekiel to give his word to a bunch of hard headed people. Has anybody read Ezekiel 1 and 2? Uh, if you sometime go back and read that, God says, ezekiel i 'm going to make you hard-headed." Anybody ever called you hard-headed? Has anybody ever thought that of you hard-headed? Uh, God says, i'm going to make you hard-headed i 'm going to make your head like a flint because you're going to hard-headed people, and I want you to tell them the truth, even though they 're hard-headed. Why would a God do that? Why would he do that? Why would a God exile a people that had been idolatrous, rebellious, not seeking him, making idols at every turn, committing spiritual adultery at every turn, whoring after idols? This is the talk of the Old Testament. Uh, God having enough, punishing them, sending them off. Why wouldn't he like Pilate just wash his hands of them and be done with them? Why would he send a prophet? Why would he do that? Because he loves them. Because he's long-suffering. Because he's patient and kind and not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to what? Repentance. Changing their minds about what is true, about what is really important, about what is eternal, and how to live with God forever. That's why he sends the prophets. That's why we have this book. All right. Now, uh, I want to give you some coaching in terms of reading and appreciating the book of Revelation. And I I sense, I'm I'm sure it is for me, so it must be for you, is like, this is so complicated, I'll never get anything out of it. That's not true. You can get stuff out of it. There's a blessing promised to you if you will read it. It's the climax of prophecy. It's a book about God and what God wants us to know. It's not just a book about the future and how everything ends in the future. It's a book from God to you right now to help you change the way you think about stuff. To help you see through the things in our culture that seem so important, that seem so loud and powerful, the things that are so disturbing. This is a book designed to give you hope and comfort, and a strong, steady strength that is fueled by love for a God who would give his only son as a sacrifice to redeem the likes of you. And you can say to God, I think we both know what we're dealing with here. That's why. That's what this book is about. All right. There's a quote here. There's three lines on it. But let me just point out to you this one The two words here, revelation is a theological psychology. What in the world is that? Theological psychology. Revelation says some things about God, which is designed to affect the way that we think. You get that? Theological psychology uh, that is intended to alter the way that we think. You've heard you 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 probably said to somebody, you've probably thought it about people. They need to go see a counselor. Why do you say stuff like that? Because they're all jacked up, because they're messed up, because their lives are a train wreck. This book is designed to help us all know some things about God that change the way that we think, that change the way we think about problems that change the way we live our lives, that change what we value, all right? That's what this book is. All right, now, having said that, the bad news is uh, one guy who's a really good Bible student of, of chapter 10 says, and I quote, this is one of the more complex moments in John's narrative. Well, if this is one of the more complex moments, what has the rest of it been? Yeah, I get that. All right, two things that may help us here, two things for you to look at when we read the text here in just a moment is this. Uh, John now has a personal role in this chapter. No pun intended. Well, slightly intended. John has a role in this chapter uh, to eat. Uh, and the second thing is uh, eating is one of the main uh focal points of the chapter. So I've got everybody's attention because we all love to eat, okay? For some of you, that's very apparent and others less so. I'm okay. Uh, moving right along. Now, uh, here's another great coaching point for everybody, okay? And you don't do this very well. Three questions we ask when we read the Bible. And if we just read it sleepily, uh, superficially, We're not going to get a lot out of it. Uh, It's kind of like, you know, you tell people, chew your food a little bit. You know, chew it twice before you swallow it. You'll enjoy it more. Uh, Same with reading the Bible. The first question is, what is what does it say? We rush by that so quickly. But just pay attention to what is being said. Because we have words here on a page. And these words are designed to create an image in our mind that is designed, I don't know how to say this, like sunburn. You know how you're, you're, you're out, you're, man, you're loving, you have a wonderful day at the beach, not realizing that, you know, tonight you're going to be very uncomfortable because that sun shines on you and then it just continues to burn. That's what the visions in this book are designed to do, to get in your brain and then affect the way you worship and affect the way you pray and affect the way you think about your trouble. That's what these images are designed to do. And if you don't see them, you're going to miss that. So there's a, literally a big image that we want to, I just want you to see it with your minds. So we ask ourselves, first of all, what does the text say? When I was in seminary, some of you guys have heard of Howard Hendricks, and we had an assignment one time to read Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, a single verse, and we had to come up with something like 40 observations on that verse. So we went home and, you know, we're scrambling, you know, and came up with 40 observations on Acts 1.8. He says, okay, great. Tear that up. Give me 40 more. Trying to help us to pay attention to what the text was saying. He had us read this reading about this Harvard biology professor. Maybe you've heard of him. Lewis, I don't know how to say his name, Agassiz, Agassiz, something like that. And he was constantly, uh, talk, he has this thing about just having his students pay attention to a fish. Just look at the fish. Just see how it's made. Just observe how the fish is made, all right? Uh, all designed to help us be like more like Sherlock Holmes, to observe, and not to rush to your own understanding or the things that you particularly like, but just pay attention to what is being said. The second question is, what does it mean? To ask what does it mean is first to ask what did it mean? What did it mean to the original people who heard the book read in the first century? And then finally, and then finally, after doing all those things, then you're in a position to ask yourself, what does it mean to me? Because if I don't know what it says and I have no idea what it means, I'm going to tend to come up with the same old applications that I normally come up with, whatever that is. Jesus died on the cross. I should pray more. I'm not a good Christian. I should go to church more, you know, that kind of stuff. All right. Uh, Now, those aren't necessarily bad, but God has given us his word to to tell us some things about about himself. I have some secondary questions of application on here. What does this say about God? That's a wonderful question always to ask because as we just heard, who's the hero of the book of Revelation? Not Tim LaHaye. Not John Hagee. Jesus Christ. God is the hero. This is about him, okay? Okay. So what does this say about God or Christ? What does this teach us? And this is a good question for you to ask. Why do I need this truth now, today, on Mother's Day? Okay. Uh, All right, now let me ask some other questions. Where are we in the book? Where are we in the book? Now, there's a real easy answer to that. Chapter 10. Okay, yes, we're in chapter 10. Okay, but in the book of Revelation, where are we? We're in, the, we're in the high grass, okay? We're not on the fairway here, much less the green. We're in the rough, rough, rough part of the book. Yeah, okay. Uh, w- 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 there's three somethings in this part of the book. Three what's? Sorry? Okay, three woes, all right. Three numbered sequences, numbered sequences. How many are there? Seven. There's three sevens in this part of the book. What are those sevens? What's the first seven? Seven Angels? seals. Uh, we see a vision of the throne. Uh, there's a, the one sitting on the throne has a scroll. Is sealed with seven seals, okay? Uh, That should be automatic to all of us right now. Who opens those seals? The lamb. Jesus does. That's a big deal in chapter five. There's a major problem in chapter five. The one sitting on the throne has a scroll. It's all sealed up and nobody can open it. Nobody can know about the world and life and eternity from God's perspective. Nobody's worthy, that's a key word, to open it, except for one person. The Son of God who came down from heaven and conquered by dying and shedding his blood. The victory was won through defeat. Don't forget that, all right? First seven seals, the Lamb opens them. Uh, when we get between seal number six, which is in chapter six, and seal number seven, which is in chapter eight, what's between chapter six and chapter eight? There's an easy answer to that. Chapter seven. Chapter seven. What's in chapter seven? There's a pause. I talked about this. I preached a message on it. There's a pastoral pause. There's a a timeout, and there's two. There's a pair of visions. There's a pair of images designed to just... Let's take a break for a moment. Seals are being opened. Uh, Bad things are happening on the earth. Let's take just a moment and remind ourselves that God has a people that he's protecting. We have this vision of the 144,000, and then we have a vision of a multicultural multitude in chapter seven. It's an interlude, all right? Then we have the second group of seven, That's what we're in right now. What are those? What's that seven things? We had seals, but then we have what? Trumpets. Trumpets. What do trumpets do? Announce. Announce what, typically? In the Bible. Wrath. Wrath is coming. Warning is maybe a better announcement. Tornado siren, think of that. Seven tornado sirens, okay? Uh, trumpets warning of wrath. Whose wrath is it, by the way? God's wrath. Not Rome's wrath, not Babylon's wrath, God's wrath, okay? Now, uh, the, the eight trumpets uh, go from chapter eight to chapter nine, and then they finish uh, basically at the end of chapter 11, What's between chapter 9 and chapter 11? There's an easy answer to that. Chapter 10. And guess where we are? We're in chapter 10 right now. Chapter 10 is like chapter 7. It's a pause. It's a break in the action. These trumpets have been announcing stuff. If you were here last week, it wasn't a great lesson. Uh, uh, We had this cloud of locusts. Their king was Abaddon, Apollyon. They came from the pit. You've heard of the phrase, the pit of hell. We looked at the pit of hell. We looked into the pit of hell last week. Smoke comes out, locusts locusts come out of the smoke. They're stinging people uh, with stingers. It's like demonic affliction on who? Not God's people, on those who dwell on the earth that are not God's people, all right? And then we have this cavalry, 200 million horsemen, on horses whose tails are like snakes, they too are afflicting the people who dwell on the earth. And maybe you want to cheat and look at the end of chapter 10. Cheating's not a bad thing at all. Uh, at the end of chapter 9, what's the result? We, we, we began our lesson with this last week. These people who have been afflicted by this demonic horde of cavalry, how do they respond? Not, not well. They didn't repent, okay? So seal number uh, uh, five, trumpet number five and six, now we have a pause, just like the pause between seal number six and seven. There's a pause here. This pause, just like chapter seven, has two images. We're gonna look at one this morning and one, not next week, but the week after that. Do you see how complex the structure of the book of Revelation is? And everything I've said to you is in the book. I'm not spinning this. I'm not making it up. I'm helping you understand how to think your way through this book. Okay. Uh, today chapter 10, because it deals with eating, uh, we have three bites. Okay. And I'll mix the metaphor up a little bit. Think about being in a restaurant. Some of you are going to restaurants. Anybody going to a restaurant after we're done here? Hence a little pressure on me to be done. Okay. I get that. Uh, You know, first of all, somebody's going to come to your table, you have a waiter, okay? That waiter's going to give you something. He's going to give you a menu, and then you're going to order something off that menu, and he's going to bring you something to eat. That's a good way to think about this chapter. First of all, we have a waiter, then we have a menu, we have a word, and then we have uh, something to eat. All right, the first bite is the waiter. Chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. This is the key part because this is the vision or the image. And so I want to read it all to you. And you're you're going to have a lot of questions like, when are we going to be done would be one question, but you're also going to wonder what this means. All right, let's just just read what the text says. Then after chapter nine, after this demonic cavalry, after these people who are not repenting, Then I saw another mighty angel. He saw a mighty angel in chapter five, okay? Uh, He sees another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head. And his face was like the sun and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea, and his left foot on the land, and called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying... Seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. You ever seen a hot air balloon when you weren't expecting to see one? You ever just walking on, on a walk and all of a sudden you see a hot? Does that have a way of getting your attention? Right? Is it, uh, have you ever been to the Grand Canyon? Anybody? Hands? Uh, do you remember standing on the south rim of the Grand Canyon and trying to take it all in? What does that feel like? To stand on the rim of the Grand Canyon and try to take it all in. What's the feeling? Overwhelming. Overwhelming. Awe. Surreal. God created. God created. Praise. I can't believe a God who makes a world like so compelling. I want to go down in there. Uh, Okay. Uh, Have you ever seen the Northern Lights? Hands? Anybody, Northern Lights? One time on a Sunday night in Des Moines, Iowa, in our first house, it was about 10.30 or 11 o'clock. I don't know why we were up, but we were up, and we were outside, and we see the northern lights in Des Moines, Iowa. Do you know what it looked like? It's dark, and we're looking north. Hello. Uh, And from that part of the horizon, I'm not kidding, from that part of the horizon to that part of the horizon in a giant, shimmering, undulating, phosphorescent green triangle that came to a point right over our heads was this fantastic, memorable display of splendiferous glory. Um, How did I feel when I was looking at that? All of that, it's, it's unbelievable. It's how I feel when I see Mount Rainier. When I'm driving there, when I'm in the park, when we left the park, I'm looking. It is so, first of all, gigantic and captivating and memorable. I, I can't say enough about it. That's what this vision is like. This is a vision that was designed theological psychology to comfort, to captivate John so that he took this experience with him for the rest of a very difficult, hairy ride as God is revealing the end of history as we know it and the judgment that he's going to pour out on the earth when his plan and purposes are fulfilled, okay? So this vision, I'll say it one more time, comforting, captivating, unforgettable. Now, this was not based on pizza. This was based on revelation from God to John, okay? Theological psychology. This is God mercifully giving John Glimpses of spiritual, not literal, spiritual reality so that he would live a different life in a hostile world. Mighty angel coming down from heaven. I saw a mighty angel coming down from heaven. Where is John? Hey, how did that happen? Because from chapter four to chapter nine, John's kind of been at the throne room watching stuff get thrown down to earth, watching horses come, watching judgment, temporal, restrained, but judgment being poured out on earth. All of a sudden, we're not told, but it's good to observe like David just did. John's perspective has changed. He's not up there in the briefing room, in the control room anymore with the, I'm picturing the military heads of state that meet with the president, wherever that is, Uh, John's now back down on earth and he's there for a reason. He's got a purpose for being there. That's that's also part of the significance here. Angels coming down, wrapped in a cloud, rainbow, face like the sun, legs like pillars of fire. Pillars of fire. Where have we heard of pillars of fire before? Sorry? Yeah. Yeah in the wilderness when God was providing and who was he providing and protecting the people that he had just redeemed. How did he redeem them by basically, can I say kicking Pharaoh's butt by giving all these plagues designed to, I still haven't thought of this word, uh, show him that he was the real God and not the gods of Egypt. If you can think of that word, I'd love to know what it is. Uh, whenever I think of it, I'll tell you, uh, Okay, uh, he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. Just keep that in mind because in chapter 13, bad things are going to come out of the sea. There's going to be a beast that comes out of the sea, like, like an invading army from the ocean to Patmos. And there's going to be a beast that comes out of the land. So when those scary beasts begin coming out of the sea and the land, we need not to forget that John saw a vision of a mighty angel from heaven where God's in control who exercised sovereignty over the sea and the land. Don't, don't just keep that in your mind. Again, this, vivid, this image is to be vivid and memorable. He calls out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. Where have we heard a lion before in the book of Revelation? Chapter five, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah has conquered, okay? Uh, A lion roaring. Uh, When he called out, when the lion called out, the seven thunders sounded. Did anybody hear thunder yesterday? I did too. Thunder has a way of getting your attention, okay? Particularly when it's associated with lightning. And if you go back to chapter four and, and see this glorious, Ezekiel-fueled vision of the throne, around the throne, is lightning and peals of thunder. Thunder reminds us that it came from God, the the ruler, the sovereign Lord of everything. Thunder. Thunder's big and powerful. It rumbles. And and that says something about God, uh, because that's where it came from. John was getting ready to write down what the thunder said. But a voice from heaven said, don't write that down. Now, everybody wants to know what that was. Well, we don't know. We're not told. As a matter of fact, we're told not to worry about that. There is something we need to worry about, and that's later in the chapter. Okay, the angel stands. This is repeated, so it's significant. This angel standing on the sea and the land. Remember Colossus? The statue of Colossus bestriding the ocean a foot on the sea and the land. This mighty angel must've been big. Uh, He raises his right hand to heaven and he swears by the eternal God who created everything, heaven and all that is in it, earth and all that is in it, sea and all there was in it. Uh, and he, uh, this is what he swears. No more delay. Uh, but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded, this is the last trumpet, by the way, trumpet number seven. In those days of trumpet number seven, read the end of chapter 11 to to read about those days. The mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. Okay, uh, you've heard the song, when the trumpet of the Lord shall sound and time shall be no more. It's taken right out of this verse. When the trumpet of the Lord shall sound, the the new King James literally says, time shall be no more. Now, that's not a philosophical issue, time stopping, eternity starting. That's not what's happening here. This is saying when God's purposes for time have come to an end. That's what this is saying. When God's purposes have been fulfilled when the trumpet of the lord shall sound in time shall be no more you know you remember the name of that song when the roll is called up yonder i'll be there so we had an elder in our church in texas and i'll end with this uh we, we were o- over at their house for lunch uh sunday lunch many many times and they would say pass the pyonders cuz when the roll is called a yonder, i'll be there okay so uh yeah so uh Uh, yeah, okay. Uh, This chapter ends by John being commissioned just like Ezekiel was to eat a scroll. And he said, it's going to be sweet to you in your mouth, sweet like honey. But after you eat that scroll down in your stomach, it's going to make you bitter. And then he says, John is commissioned because he's back on the earth. He's got a job to do. Yeah, there's going to be a time when everything's over. But meanwhile, John, you have work to do. Meanwhile, carpenter's class, We have work to do. Jesus Christ died to make us into a kingdom and priests. We have a commission to talk about the gospel everywhere we go. Uh, Some of us actually go. We use our relationships. Uh, Some of us give resources so that others can go. We, We make it possible we give to our local church so that they can make it possible for teenagers and others to go to other countries and tell people about Jesus, Czech Republic or whatever. Some of you may want to, Shirley is one and I'm going to be one, Marilyn, work at Vacation Bible School to have an opportunity to tell kids about Jesus, okay? Now, the gospel for probably most of us has been exceedingly sweet that God would love a sinner like me enough to send his son to die in my place and pour his wrath out on his son instead of pouring his wrath out on me. What a sweetness. Uh, But that gospel also has a way of making our stomach bitter as we think about people who have not responded to that gospel, as we think about how that gospel divides us from people that we love, as we think about people who in their sin and darkness and depravity have not come to have the power from God to repent from their sins and change their way of thinking. And they push back and blow back so forcefully against that gospel of Jesus Christ. So I think that maybe a lot of us, if not all of us, have also experienced that sorrow Uh, that bitterness that comes from the gospel as well. Uh, But in that bitterness, we remember that our Lord said, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Uh, Back to chapter 7. There will come a time when God wipes every tear away from our eyes. Uh, But uh, eat your scroll. Uh, Tastes like chicken. Uh, and, And in that scroll, as we eat it, it is designed to captivate us so that we would find ourselves quite naturally talking about the king who is sovereign over everything i'm not talking about rick warren and his purpose-driven life i'm talking about god and his purpose-driven everything because there's kind of come a time you could read about daniel see more i could say daniel's all about and it's language right in this chapter daniel wants to know when is all this going to happen And God says to Daniel, seal it up, like John was told, not telling it yet. But this book, Revelation, says in the days of the seventh trumpet, we'll look at that later, uh, all of his purposes are going to be fulfilled. So uh, we want to be reconciled with the Lamb of God. And we want to be ambassadors for Jesus Christ. Being an ambassador of Jesus means that you are a sweet aroma to some who love him and an aroma of death to those who are not. May you be as hard-headed in that gentle, merciful story about Jesus as Ezekiel was. Let's close in prayer. Father, may this mighty angel... Uh, linger in our imaginations that we too would be comforted and emboldened that we are not in control, but we've been given. We have been given a message to share. May we not be ashamed of it. May we rejoice in him, the king, the suffering uh, servant, the lamb of God, the lion of the tribe, of Judah, in whose name we pray. Amen.